Welcome to the analysis. I'm Colin Berzanthus. In a minute, we'll be discussing the growth of community wealth building and its potential moving forward with Neil McEnroy from the Democracy Collaborative. Please remember to like, subscribe, ring that bell so you get notifications, and consider hitting the donate button to support our work. Back in a flash. The last 40-plus years of neoliberalism have seen precious few victories for the working class. The most affluent countries are now regularly characterized by economic crashes, intergenerational wealth gaps, high rates of suicide and depression, stagnating and even declining life expectancies, with the threat of global climate change thrown in as a sort of bonus. But just under the radar, there actually has been a working-class movement that has scored some impressive victories and gathered a surprising amount of momentum. Community wealth building is a highly replicable method of economic development that brings together local procurement strategies with inclusive models of ownership for land and enterprise. It was first used to pull people out of poverty in a very poor part of Cleveland, Ohio. A larger version was then taken across the pond to the city of Preston, England, and Preston went on to be named the most improved city in the United Kingdom by PricewaterhouseCoopers. Since then, it's gone a bit viral as an international movement. Community wealth building initiatives now pop up around the world from small towns to major cities like Denver, Chicago, London, and Amsterdam, and national governments are starting to pay attention as well. It's made its way onto the $68 billion strategic plan for the U.S. Housing and Urban Development Department. It's influenced the way the CHIPS Act on semiconductors was ruled out, while the Scottish government created the new position of a minister for community wealth building. So how does community wealth building work? What challenges does it face as it looks to continue its expansion? And could it finally offer a path out of neoliberalism? To discuss, we have one of its leading practitioners, Neil McEnroy. Neil is a former CEO of CLESS, the Centre for Local Economic Strategy. He's been an advisor to the Scottish Government on community wealth building, and he serves as the global lead for community wealth building for the Think and Do Tank, the Democracy Collaborative. Neil, welcome to the analysis. Nice to be here. Let's begin with Margaret Thatcher's most haunting phrase, Tina, there is no alternative. I think a lot of people feel that over the past few decades, it hasn't much mattered who they've voted for, they've always ended up with some form of neoliberalism on the other side. So can you begin by speaking about how community wealth building offers a viable alternative to neoliberal methods of economic development? Great question. Um, look, the fundamental woes that the world faces is down simply to wealth and power. Uh, who has wealth? Um, where does it go? Uh, and how that wealth controls the very nature of how many of us, where we work, what we do, how 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 we nurture the planet with that wealth. So, in simple terms, community wealth builds a correction to wealth and power. Um, but it's not just a concept; it, it actually fundamentally seeks to rewire wealth and power by practical things we can actually do. If, we could start now, and we are starting now. So it's practical. It's it's almost um, it's it, it's step by step. It's got a big attack on wealth and power, but we do it in practical ways, chipping away, uh, and that's I think its strength. You know, many other great concepts are alternatives, but community wealth building offers a conceptual frame to it, but also a practical way of chipping away at neoliberal and neoliberalism and the questions of power and wealth. Can you talk about some of the component parts? And you talk about how there are different ways of chipping away. We can get started very quickly 
And I think one of the things that makes it something that can speedily be accessed is this element of procurement and talking about how procurement can play a role in changing the game in a local community very quickly. Uh, can you talk a little bit about some of those component parts? Yeah. It's worth just mentioning that um, from my own experience working 30 years in economic development, mm. and I also shared that consciousness with millions, billions across the world of like, these things, this is, things are getting worse. We're not dealing with climate crisis, poverty, and so forth. And so um, the way that community wealth building uh, practically does things is thinks about, well, let's think about wealth and the different pillars and dimensions of wealth. And so I, I devised just a simple way of kind of basketing up wealth, land, huge, huge source of wealth, finance, capital, if you like, huge source of wealth, um, uh, wages, workforce, huge source of wealth, um, thinking about institutions, inclusive, you know, different types of enterprises that are a huge source of wealth. And then also, of course, procurement, public spending. Now, that, it's not, there's five pillars, so workforce, finance, inclusive and democratic enterprises, work and um, procurement. Now, the interesting thing about procurement, it's, it's not preeminently important, it's one of the five, but procurement, particularly public procurement, that's our money. Right. That, you know, that's democratic money. It's not, you know, it's hard to influence a commercial, a private individuals or a commercial, private, com uh, co a private corporation's money, but we can influence taxation, we can influence public money. And of, and of course, that represents probably 30 30% roughly of all, all the economy comes from that public um, money. So what institutions, local government, national government, universities, colleges, hospitals, pub public institutions, how they spend their money is an particularly important feature. It's particularly important how we might change how the economy works and where wealth goes. So progressive procurement looks to start to using that public resource, if a hospital, sorry, if a local government is buying a good or service, their question is then, well, how do I see that is starting to re-turn re the dial on wealth and who gets that wealth? So looking at local procurement, looking at firms who, who are not just extracting the surplus into the ether of the global economy, but nurturing the place, the environment, and also in, in terms, you know, having ownership forms where wealth is locked in, employee ownership and co-ops, so forth. So procurement, because it's a democratically overseen um, uh, part of wealth, it has an important leverage uh, position in trying to see how we can kind of shift the local economy through progressive procurement practice. Um, I want to talk about some of those other structures that you were talking about, because these are, in some ways, these may seem like kind of common sense points once they're made. But a lot of the time when the economy is discussed by mainstream pundits, uh, there's the discussion of capitalism and government. So you have these corporations with a few owners, and then there's government over here that owns other things. And there's, it, there's hardly any discussion of anything in between. But there are lots of other kinds of structures than just a capitalist corporation and government ownership. And that comes in in a very important way in this, does it not? What we need to do is democratize our economy. And that doesn't just mean the state control. It means control partly by 
of the state. I mean, in certain instances, it might be fit for purpose to do railways or whatever it may be. But it's also that wider democratization of ownership, that plural forms of democratization. And increasingly, certain sectors in different parts of the world, you can see that lend itself to particular forms of democratic ownership, either railways, perhaps state-owned railways. When it comes to things like childcare or um, some forms of everyday, re everyday retail, this might lend itself to worker co-op or other forms of, of democratic ownership. So we need community wealth building supports, uh, effervescence, a flourishing of those democratic forms because by their very nature, they are not wealth extracting, they are wealth generating in terms of the people who own those forms. So we should not see this as capitalism versus government rather than capitalism versus democracy and democratization of the economy. I think that there is some room here potentially to bring together different kinds of coalitions by bringing in those different options. Uh, there was a, a poll by the University of Chicago in, I think, 2019. And they asked 1,500 Americans what they would prefer to work for, a state-owned enterprise, an enterprise owned by outside investors, or a worker-owned enterprise. And the results were pretty staggering. 72% of Americans said they would rather work for a company that was owned by its employees. But it wasn't just that that huge number said that they would rather work for that. It was the demographics. It included 74% of, of Democrats, 72% of Republicans, and 67% of independents, and a clear right. majority of black, white, gay, straight, male, and female participants. So we live in this incredibly polarized world where we see different political camps constantly at each other's throat. And then in comes this other form of inclusive ownership that suddenly has very, very widespread appeal across the political spectrum. So that opens up some doors. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and I think what you touch upon there is, is that you, you said before, common sense, mm. you know, we all know as, as citizens and as workers that when we have more of a stake in something, mm. yeah, a genuine stake, then it's better for us. It makes us feel better, but also in terms of cooperatives, that we know that having a genuine stake, there's no distant shareholders. We are the shareholders. Mm. And we act in the interest of both making a viable, strong, growing, going concern, but also mindful of the... Uh, wider impact of that firm, that enterprise. So th this is a common sense understanding. The thing is, though, is that I think the powers that be in neoliberalism and they they don't want these alternatives. Hmm. There's an intentional desire to squash them because it it breaks the link between these corporations and excessive profits and excessive shareholder dividends. Mm -hmm. So there is a, almost like a natural bubbling up, as your figure has shown, of how people think employee ownership, worker ownership is a good thing. Yeah? yeah, But there is a reaction, I, th I believe, from political forces and from power and wealth and neoliberalism who does not actually wish to see these things grow because it threatens their own power and wealth. And there's a political tussle then in community wealth building, which I think is an important um, dimension. Whilst I've said community wealth building is practical and you can get on and do things, there is also a political dimension if we're really going to bring this to scale. Right. 
Yeah, well, and we'll touch a little bit more on some of the challenges that are faced in order to keep this movement expanding. Um, let's go through a little bit more of the core practices, then we'll go into some examples of how this has operated in, in hands-on practice so far. Um, there is, uh, you, we've talked about employee ownership and cooperatives, we talked about local procurement. Then there starts to become this element in which these start to play together a little bit. You get more local investment happening in companies where the profits go into the hands of lots of local people. And then we're talking about really seriously changing some trends. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about how these different pieces start to build into a complex? Yeah, they all they all interplay with each other. And, and a simple example really is that a, a, a large anchor institution, a local city mm. buying goods and services, um, it, it may wish to buy or seek to buy that good or service from an employee-owned firm. And so that it's not a global corporate that would extract the, the surplus. It sticks with the local employee-owned firm and the workers are in the sense of the, the beneficiaries of that as, 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 work, as workers, but also as owners of that firm itself. Mm. They also would may have support a living wage policy. So it supports a different form of ownership and clear real living wage policies. Um, it also will have with that firm, uh, that procurement uh, procurement process, be interested in the governance and the financial investment portfolio of that employee-owned firm. So that would play into the financial pillar, if you like. Um, so, and also may be interested in terms of its use of land and property and what its um, ownership structure around that is and, and, and also how it seeks to play a, a beneficial wider um, stewardship of land within the place that it exists. So they, so they all they all interplay in different ways. And I think the action planning process for Community Wealth Building is where you really see the connective tissue between those different elements in Community Wealth Building. Just a point, a practical point, Colin, you know, many areas start, to work on community wealth building, maybe start with procurement or start with work. But ultimately, the full cream requires uh, all of those pillars and how they all interconnect and interfuse and relate to each other. And that's where you get the more um, scaled up system change, if you like, in terms of how the economy works and who it works for. Something that I, I wanted to throw in here was this conversation about land that you began there. Uh, we've done a number of interviews with uh, the economists James K. Galbraith and Michael Hudson, who think that we really need to give more attention to some of the classical political economists, talked about the importance of land and rentiers. And uh, one of the points that Henry George pointed out was that there is this double-edged sword to progress. He wrote a very famous book called Progress in Poverty, in which he pointed out that uh, in the very places that we have growing populations, more productivity, more prosperity, the value of land goes up. And that means landlords are collecting more without actually contributing anything. In fact, the working class, by contributing, drives up their own cost of living. And often that leads to the working poor or people being thrown into poverty. Uh, that's also known sometimes as the problem with gentrification. So how do we create forms of uh, land ownership, at least, and getting a foot in the door, so that we are keeping people from being pushed out through gentrification because when we get more local procurement, we get more inclusive ownership of enterprise that will create more prosperity, but there's the risk of a gentrifying. 
Yeah, absolutely, and I I I completely agree with what you said there, and I'm familiar with the 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 people and writers you mentioned that you know land land is fundamental, um, and land is not really a commodity and shouldn't be a commodity. It's the very nature of um, uh, humankind in terms of land. If you extend it to the wider biosphere and 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 environment, if you like, so land is fundamentally important. It's not a commodity. Um, and it's been commodified, commodified, um, largely through accelerated through the largely through the modern capitalism, if you like, in terms of commodification. So, um, it's it's extraordinarily hard to uncouple land ownership that goes way way back to historic injustices. Um, and I do like to, you know, I think the idea of. Um, um, defunding the idea of going deep back into the history I think is really really important um, but it's thorny and difficult and and, and fraught sure. um, I think from a community welcome perspective whilst there's big questions about land and land change and historical reparations but there is this need to kind of start whatever we can to increase this democratised ownership of land either state ownership community ownership, community land trusts, and different forms of land reform. For instance, in Scotland, where, where, where I live, um, in Scotland we have a Land Reform Act, which means, in a sense, that community when a piece of land comes up for sale, communities have first option to purchase that. There's a kind of a small window when communities get the opportunity to get themselves together to potentially buy it before it goes out into the one market. Um, so... Um, we, 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 yeah, um, I, you, you said it, and I'm, I'm repeating myself, but clearly land is fundamentally important. We need to have new mechanisms by which we seek to have community ownership, community land trust, and different mechanisms, legal mechanisms, to increase the opportunities for communities and collective ownership of that land. There is another pillar that needs to be brought up here, and that is yeah, yeah. a big pillar of finance. And that's a mm -hmm. big question because, of course, the 1% are not particularly eager to put funding towards other people's ownership of enterprises and of land. Uh, the When it comes to things like worker cooperatives, corporate banks are often very hesitant to offer anything in terms of loans. And uh, there's also the question of whether we even want those corporate banks in that conversation in the first place. Uh, I recently did an interview with Bill Black, who was one of the major bank regulators in the United States. He feels that the big banks in the United States have to be brought down to a scale of under $50 billion each if they're going to be uh, if it we're going to avoid having them as systemic threats, they're so corrupt and so big at this point that they can crash the economy at any moment. So uh, what can we turn to in terms of finance if we cannot turn to these big lenders and these big corporate financial institutions? Yeah, good question. Again, um, I, I th I, some of the pillars, um, in a sense, are more readily ready in the grasp of municipalities, communities, nation states, you know, procurement, you know, it's more readily grasped in terms of its entirety of what you could do. Um, other of the pillars requires a, a further, a less down the line, less realizable, and clearly we need um, huge changes to the global financial system and the global banking system. And that's huge, it's international, and it's legislative regulatory. 
But what one can do in terms of a financial ecosystem is to think about how do we increase the circularity and the virtuous nature of the of national or local finance. So public banking, and there's many in the in, in North America, public banking's, you know, that has a intimacy with place. It has a relationship to that place. And I think that is a you know, thing that we need to see accelerations of. And um, how we use our public pension funds, I think, and how are they used and how those public pension funds, what are they investing the resources in? Are they investing it in, you know, things to make a return, Dubai, bags, um, you know, Dubai, nuclear warheads, cigarettes, or is it actually a local investment? Also, those other more localised forms of financial activity like community development finance initiatives, credit unions, um, other forms by which we can capture some of that wealth and make it more circular circular and virtuous. So um, also we have, in, you know, the, the, the role of public resources and, you know, national investment banks. In Scotland, we have a national investment bank, public-private. I think using our own public resources to create investment vehicles that is more uh, virtuous and community wealth building centred, I think is important. So, you know, at a very localised neighbourhood community level, we need to start to find ways by which we um, can, a, can a, a pool by which we can, some of us can put some of our spare capital, yeah, but also vehicles by which it can be made recirculated when we do get a return through different enterprise and activities back into the economy. So there's things we can do at a very micro level, I think, that's important to start to to break the dominance of the national and international finance system. But ultimately, that is that will need to be heavily regulated in the future if we're going to save the planet and save us all. Yeah, well put. Uh, you brought up credit unions. And that was something that when I was growing up, I didn't know the difference between a credit union and a standard corporate bank. That was something that I learned in my 20s. Um, and as I was looking in Canada, where I'm based out of, uh, the French-Canadian province of Quebec has a huge array of cooperatives of all kinds of, di of different sorts. They have about 45% of Canada's cooperative housing. They have the biggest collection of worker cooperatives of any state or province across Canada or the United States. And I was asking, where did this come from? How did they get all of these different forms of cooperatives? And the answer was, well, they actually had a huge credit union movement at the turn of the 20th century and the, uh, against usury, against the shenanigans of corporate bankers. And they developed this huge infrastructure of credit unions that then provided loans for all kinds of other cooperatives that made life a lot easier in that province. So there is the and, and as I started to learn about that, I realized that there are also credit unions around where I live, and there are democratic sources of finance that I had never thought about. Uh, but that also brings in this second layer of once I know that those exist, I also have to start thinking about how those can be used because even people who are maybe banking at a credit union might not know that they're part of a democratic institution and that they have outlets for facilitating some of the other things that they want to see in their community. So there's a huge education component. Yeah, no, you very eloquently put Colin. You're spot on, and I think that is where we get to the realms of the um, economic strategy, uh, the narrative, 
Um, these are very important. I think I think there is a lack of economic literacy, broadly speaking, and um, I, I, we 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 tend to be consumers, recipients of rather than active players within the economy. And I think that is where I think there needs to be the best economic strategies around the world. I feel start to surface. Um, the, the 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 five pillars of community wealth building and start to surface how um, we are constructing an economy that does work for us and our communities and starts to, um, in a sense, by creating a narrative, the understanding of how these things relate to each other. It, it The classic is, you know, the individual who may have some spare capital, yeah, in their bank account. Um, most people don't give a second thought they just let it in the bank and it accrues interest in the banking, you know, maybe an ethical bank or whatnot. Where is the opportunities for them to invest in community shares or a local a local project, which may also bring a return, yeah, perhaps an equal turn, maybe more return. So the options are not there. And I think that's the important thing about community wealth building strategies and links to economic strategy to allow the, to raise the bar on how one uses the capital that isn't a place, the finance that isn't a place, and what we as individuals do in that locality. Could you talk a little bit about some of the models of community wealth building that have been implemented thus far and some of the communities that have used these strategies and how they've how they've gone about doing that, hitting the ground running? Community wealth building began as a term invented by my organization, the Democracy Collaborative, in in Cleveland. We, we coined the term. And at that point, 17 years ago, it was broadly about procurement um, of anchor organisations and how they promoted the growth of cooperatives. Uh, um, um, and then I helped to transfer it to the United Kingdom. And in Preston, we also focused initially on procurement and anchors. But since then, it's grown to think much more about cooperative development, real living wage, um, public banking, different forms of finance, um, looking at community land trusts and different forms of land ownership. So it started to spread its wings, if you like, mm. to encompass uh, the wider uh, pillars. Um, in Scotland, where, where, I, where I now am, uh, and, and I obviously used to work for the Scottish Government as a community wealth building advisor, in Scotland, they adopted the whole model of the five pillars and have a series of action plans in a number of localities across Scotland where they take all of the five pillars um, and, and and assess where they are in terms of community wealth building and then seek to put strategies to grow them and how they, obviously how they all interconnect, interconnect as well. And that, in a sense, is becoming the mainstream approach to all, all areas have a community wealth building approach and it is fast becoming, I hope, um, uh, the mainstream way we do economic development strategy in Scotland in localities. Um, so, and places like Sydney in Australia, they also have a a look, they've been an assessment of the five pillars, state of play, and looking at strategies how they develop. So, I think the 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 five pillar model uh, through um, initial landscape assessment of where each of where a place is across those five elements and then a strategy to improve them is kind of now becoming the accepted framework for many areas across the across the globe. 
So you were involved in the pilot project in Chicago, were you not? Or you were part of the planning yep. process for that? Yeah. Can you describe some of the nuts and bolts of, of what Chicago used as a pilot? The 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 Chicago process was a we came it was already had been begun by the Office for Equity and Racial Justice, the Community Wealth Building Initiative. And and we came in using our action planning model to do a a fairly light touch assessment of where um Chicago was, particularly south and southwest Chicago, across the five pillars. So we did an assessment around procurement, workforce, finance, inclusive and democratic enterprise uh, and land. And we came up with a number of recommendations of how they could build on what they have anyway, progressive stuff that was happening anyway in Chicago. Um, so um, how they could amplify and scale some of the good stuff that was there. And that then was is now part of their Community Wealth Building Initiative, which is um, part funded through ARPA, the American Recovery Plan, uh, resources. Uh, I think it's a £15 million initiative, which is very much a seed to uh, community wealth initiatives. Um, they have a range of different uh, uh, interventions and policies and programmes of activity that looks to grow community wealth across a number of the pillars uh, and across a number of the, the pillars joined together. We're talking about things like worker cooperatives in this case? Yeah, they have a, um, a an emerging new cooperative network of support, um, uh, urban food growing, a connection connecting up um, demand for food from, say, the big anchor institutions with the producers and the distribution uh, mechanisms, uh, catering contracts, and so forth that are worker co-ops. So it's it is those sorts of um, um, relatively small scale, but uh, powerful as demonstrators of what could be done in terms of tackling some of the ingrained injustices uh, that parts of Chicago um, face. So it's one to watch, I think, in terms of how it matures and grows. Um, and obviously as a new mayor now of Chicago, I'm interested to see how he uh, takes that forward. What about the uh, concern that some people might have that a focus on local procurement could lead to inferior purchases that people will end up with more expensive products, uh, possibly worse products. Um, does Is that a serious concern for community wealth? It's certainly a comment I hear a lot, um, but in all my experience of 15 years in community wealth building, I've never, I've never yet seen uh, a piece of procurement happening through the work of community wealth building that sees a hugely inferior service or an inferior product, uh, or something that hugely increases price. And the reason I think that happens is because most of the goods or services that we purchase is is a virtual monopolies. There's actually a lack of competition, mm. and there's huge extraction of wealth and investment in that product from share, by shareholders. So and if you were to take a neoclassical stance, though I, I don't, but if you were, just turning it completely in its head, what community wealth bone does is actually increase competition. It increases the range of different potential providers of a good or service. It heightens competition, and we know competition can improve demand, and we know it can decrease price. So I think if every area in Canada or anywhere in the world was to do community wealth building, I think you'd see a a better quality, lower price, and uh, 
you would see a whole effervescence of innovation in our economy, which in some places sadly lacking through the um, dangerous extracting of wealth. I know um, Matthew Brown, the council lead in, in Preston, uh, his take on it is that community wealth building in Preston by massively expanding the number of living wage workers in the city actually led to a drastic increase of local government tax revenues and they were able to invest more and more as a result of, of doing these practices. So perhaps there is more of, it's more of a slogan than an actual practical concern. Would you say, am I not putting words in your mouth if I were to say no. I, I, th I think, I think if, I think, I, yeah, clearly there's a fiscal gain potentially of more enterprises within a place um, uh, through the flourishing of community wealth building, and, and Matthew's right on that. I think I wouldn't say it's more a rhetorical thing. I think if community wealth building was done badly, if there was someone who wished to choose a very, you know, narrow procurement line that says. Oh, I'm going to take it off that firm and I'm going to give it to this firm who's just a start-up, worker-ownership, uh, worker-owned firm who has got no track record in this, then clearly that would be a, a mistake and it wouldn't work out very well. But um, most... I've never seen anyone interpret in Community Wealth Bonner doing that sort of act. In fact, it's more likely to happen within the existing anti-progressive procurement process where a influential big corporate influences the public bodies and ends up getting a contract and doesn't deliver on it, which is actually where the scandal that happened with public procurement in the United Kingdom through its uh, protective equipment during the COVID era, where large firms got these contracts who donated to the ruling party and actually the, the materials were useless. There are some movements that are finding that the Venn diagram between what they've been working on, yeah. community wealth building is working on, have very strong overlaps. Uh, two that come to mind immediately, one would be Kate Rayworth and Donut Economics, talking yeah, yeah. about building an ecologically sustainable economy. And increasingly, as she goes into how that actually functions in practice, uh, her recommendations are increasingly about community wealth building, building uh, employee ownership and more local procurement, because this stuff, of course, Shorten supply chains, gives people affordable housing and living wage in the first distribution. So it's a much more efficient use of resources. Uh, the other one would be um, Pickett and Wilkinson's work on well-being and uh, talking about how their analysis of equality is that more equal societies don't just tend to produce better education and health results because their programs work better. It's actually that the equality itself is helping to facilitate these things. Mm. People are being, it's less likely that people are going to get left out of friend groups because some can afford to go to the movies and others can't. And you get more trust and cooperation. You get less anxiety and uh, less exclusion and loneliness. But they were talking about community wealth building extensively. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about how some of these well-being and environmental movements are increasingly overlapping with the community wealth building movement? Yeah, no, it's a great, and it, look, I think I think common sense naturally comes together, uh, uh, and you know I, I don't see the, all these complementary agendas as alternative. I think it's the new mainstream, or it should be the mainstream, uh, and the new common sense. 
And of course, I know Kate's work very well, and I know the well-being economy work, and uh, Kate Pickett and Richard Wolfson know that know them know their work. They're fantastic. There's many others as well. Uh, agendas. Um, I see them as all complementary, and all dovetailing, and I would say as a movement of alternative economics, um, we always need to be generous and extend a hand. I think neo neo neoliberalism wants to splice and dice and pick divisions. I think it's important that we come together and see them all as one. There is differences though. And I think what community wealth building, its key point of difference, for me anyway, is that it comes at it, it's always been practically focused. It comes from the practice. Its provenance, of course, lies in cooperative, cooperatives, democratizing the economy. Um, the economy as an oikomos, you know, keeper of the household, uh, a social construct. It has its rich, rich provenance, but it's always been rooted in practice and taking the fight on directly to those economic strategies at a local, regional or national level. So it's very much focused from a practitioner level. Here's what you can do on Monday. Here's what you can start. Because I think the crisis we face we can't procrastinate. We can't conceptualize. We can't just describe the problem. We need to get on and make. I mean, many, many people who are not particularly interested in concepts, they just want to know what have I got to do on Monday to start to turn the dial on these things. And that is the, I think, beauty of community wealth building. You know, the reason I came to community wealth building, what, 10, 15 years ago or so, was because I was looking for a practical alternative to the neoliberal economic development that I've seen. And I was well aware of, you know, alternative concepts. Um, I wanted practice. Um, so I think it's brilliant that Donut Economics and others are starting to um, move more towards practice because that's what we need to do. We need to win this fight every day in, on streets, in neighborhoods, and show how these alternatives truly make a difference to people's lives. That's brilliantly put. And I love that phrase, the new common sense. And I hope that that certainly is, is what is taking place. Um, what resources should people be turning to if they want to make the next jump in in an intelligent way, know what they can, where they can find research and data and things that will be of use to them? Well, two things come to mind. The, the Democracy Collaborative, we have just, we're just about to finish a guide on community wealth building, which will be on our website soon, um, so hopefully within the next month. Um, in Scotland, the Economic Development Association of Scotland, EDAS, Economic Development Association of Scotland, have a website, and they have a guide called Implementing Community Wealth Building. Um, um, and the Centre for Local Economic Strategies, uh, CLES, uh, have a range of resources on community wealth building too. So I would say Democracy Collaborative in the US um, has a website and a new guide, uh, Centre for Local Economic Strategies in the United Kingdom and the Economic Development Association of Scotland. Uh, those three organisations have, you know, all together the best that you would have everything you ever need about, from, about community wealth building if you went to those three websites. Fantastic. Neil McEnroy, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, this has been very enlightening, and I think you've given a wonderful overview of both the theory, the practice, and next steps that anyone can start taking. And at this at this time of a series of different crises, 
uh, we need that more than ever. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much, Colin. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this content and would like to see more like it, consider going to our website and hitting the donate button. We'd certainly appreciate your support. Take care.